Uh, Our passage from Luke 12 reminds me of a story from ancient China. There's a farmer who sows seeds in his field. Uh, Within a few days, the seeds sprout and begin to grow. The farmer is anxious to see his crops grow, and he decides to help his little seedlings along. He begins pulling on the seedlings, hoping to stretch them into bigger plants. And upon returning home, he proudly announces to his family that he has helped the crops grow. His son runs to the field to discover that all of the seedlings had been pulled up by the farmer and that the entire crop had been ruined. Now this farmer had been so worried about his crops growing that he neglected to allow them to do what they already knew how to do, to grow naturally according to their own makeup. Now we hopefully recognize this story as a kind of teaching parable, uh, similar to what we find in our text from Luke. It's difficult to picture an actual farmer behaving in this way. Um, But let's allow this story to help us begin to reflect on our own lives. In what ways might we allow a kind of anxiety or worry to disproportionately disrupt our lives? I would encourage each of us to pause for just a moment, reflect on your own life for a moment. Think about this rather straightforward question. What makes me worry? What makes me worry? I suspect that most of us, when pressed, might recognize worry in our lives. Some of us might worry about our finances, as does the man who approaches Jesus in our text. Do I have enough money to pay my bills this month? Is our nest egg big enough for us to live on after we retire? What if we live longer than our retirement budget? Then what? Some of us may develop anxiety due to a situation at work or school. How will I ever finish the work project while working alongside the disagreeable co-worker? And maybe disagreeable is a generous descriptor there. The number of assignments due at school can become overwhelming, creating an anxiety for our students. My term paper is due tomorrow? What? When is that deadline again? If you've never had your sleep or diet or even your digestion affected by these kinds of anxiety, it can be difficult to understand the worry experienced by another person. Now, we might also worry about relationships, whether at work or school, with neighbors and friends, or within the family. Sometimes we might worry about the problems our kids are facing, unable to swoop in and fix them. Sometimes we might be limited in our ability to aid an elderly parent or spouse whose illness continues to progress over the months and years. Some of us may worry about our reputation. Do we grow anxious by the responses to our social media posts? Does our engagement in social media create more or less anxiety in our lives? In our society, we might also worry about our health, the foods we purchase and eat, our nutrition, diet, and exercise. Worry is everywhere. Have you ever suddenly grown anxious by the traffic during your morning commute or afternoon commute? What about times in life that ought to bring us joy, times like vacation or leisure activities? Has anyone ever gotten worried about making travel plans? 
Does that make you anxious? Does anyone want to admit getting anxious during their round of golf? Has anyone ever checked their heart rate on their Fitbit during the big game? I don't want to suggest that worry or anxiety are equal in kind or measure for each of us. But I think we can agree that in our modern society, worry is real. That's my first assumption. And secondly, that worry is pervasive. It's not just something in our heads, a trivial problem that we can merely think our way out of. If I just decide not to worry, then maybe I won't worry so much. But now I'm worrying about worrying, and it continues on and on. So with this backdrop in mind, let's now turn to our text in Luke 12. As we continue this week in our study of Luke, the text today contains two main sections. Um, the story in verses 13 to 21 is often called the parable of the rich fool. And then in verses 22 to 34, Jesus tells his listeners, do not worry. On the surface, these sections might seem disconnected, as if they don't really go together. Um, the first section, as we will see, deals with greed, at least on one level. Um, and then the second discusses worry or anxiety. As we try to make sense of our text, we should consider how and why these two sections are together. Our passage from last week included Jesus' teaching in front of sizable crowds. And then we pick up in verse 13 with the man interrupting Jesus to seek adjudication in an inheritance matter. Likely the man was a younger brother whose father had died and left the entire family inheritance to an older brother. And this was common. Consider the parallel passage of the parable of the prodigal son, which comes later in chapter 15. In that more familiar story, a younger son requests his inheritance before the father passes away. Our verses here perhaps put that later story from chapter 15 in cultural context. Here, we may even feel sorry for the man to some extent, recognizing his request of some amount of family inheritance is justified. On one level, perhaps even across cultures, we might see the impetus for this question as, as a valid question. But Jesus does not take the bait. <laughs> he does not want to be, nor does he agree to be, a civil claims court judge, an adjudicator of family financial squabbles. Rather, Jesus first warns the man about greed. He then takes the opportunity presented to him by the man's request to share a parable. As with many of Jesus' parables, here too, he creates a teaching moment from the life situation or the thematic question posed to him, and then he flips the listener's understanding to jolt them from their assumptions as presented to him. Like many parables in Luke, this one contains a rich man. The uh, there once was a rich man motif, it occurs many times in Luke across multiple parables. And this part of the larger theme of riches and wealth in this gospel. Spoiler alert, um, Luke repeatedly shares stories of Jesus' warning against wealth accumulation. In this story, the man experiences a bumper crop and chooses to build bigger barns to store his surplus. 
if we think about the basics of supply and demand. That he experienced a bumper crop likely meant that others did too. <laughs> the market for that crop would have been flooded and any excess devalued. So the man chooses to save the surplus for a time with less supply when demand would go up and then he can sell for a higher rate. This makes sense, right? And before reading on, any stewardship impulses that we possess may wish to applaud his efforts. But Jesus portrays him as one who out of self-interest is a hoarder of wealth. The man dies rich, embodying expressions that we may have heard before. The one who dies with the most possessions still dies. Or no matter how many possessions one owns, he or she cannot take them to the grave. While we may wish to engage in a discussion of potential inheritors in the background between the lines of the story, that perhaps accumulated wealth might be passed on to the man's progeny for their benefit, that does not seem to be the point of this story, and they're not in the story. <laughs> the desire to control one's own financial prosperity by storing up wealth is described here as not being rich toward God. The opposite of the man storing up his wealth would have been to share his wealth while alive, or to display some kind of concern or consideration for disadvantaged persons, those without such wealth. Being rich toward God takes place by demonstrating a richness toward other people. Jesus ends the parable, and then in verse 22, he turns to his disciples to begin our second main section for today. It's noteworthy that he shifts to speak to his disciples here. While it is possible that the man with the question, or even the large crowd, is still listening, the fact that Jesus directs his teaching on worry here specifically to his disciples seems important. Those that wish to follow Jesus need to understand the significance of trusting God's provision. Underneath the surface is perhaps a legitimate concern on the part of the disciples that God might not provide even the most basic needs for survival. Many of these people had left their homes and their jobs to follow Jesus. Food and clothing. It doesn't get much more basic than this. Food and clothing are survival level necessities. If someone truly lacks them or struggles to acquire them, it's certainly understandable and justified for them to exhibit a little bit of worrying. But for those that comfortably have plenty, there's likely no worrying taking place, at least not for food and clothing. There's a certain luxury to worry about other things in life when one already has plenty of food and clothing. As a recent commentator puts it, quote, to tell rich people not to worry about food or clothing is fine. They have closets and pantries. To tell people on public assistance who need to feed their children not to worry is just cruel. In telling his disciples not to worry about their lives, about food and clothing, Jesus uses what is called a lesser to greater argument. 
The lesser to greater argument affirms a quality about a supposed lesser item or being. Here, the, the three examples of the ravens and the lilies and the grasses. And he does that in order to demonstrate a higher level of regard for a different object. That God's provision in the created order sustains the existence of birds and plants is provided as proof that God cares all the more about the sustaining of humanity, the culmination of the created order. Due to God's wisdom, the world contains within it a structure and rhythms which provide for life. And God created humanity to take part, to participate in this creation, according to these rhythms. God divinely cares for the natural world. We might sum up the sentiment here. Do not worry, because God takes care of the natural world. It might be helpful at this point for us to explore further our relationship to the natural world. Another way of putting this is that I want us to consider the distinction between materiality and materialism. Doing so may help us make sense of our two sections of the text as connected in Jesus' teaching. In order to spark our thinking about materiality, let's recall some words by Madonna. <laughs> You're already ahead of me. Um, not the mother of Jesus. Um, I don't know what it says about us that you thought of one Madonna versus the other and that you thought correctly. Um, the other Madonna. Um, in her 1984 pop song, Material Girl, Madonna sings a seemingly innocuous line. We are living, I'm not gonna sing it. We, we are living in a material world. And perhaps you've heard the song before. If we stop with just that line, a simple pop song, is making a very profound statement about the nature of the world. And I agree. We do live in a material world. God created it this way. The song continues, though, um, with Madonna declaring that she is a material girl, one who seeks after the boys with the most money, and the broader lyrics describe living solely for pleasure, living only based on the material world. In some sense, this is not a new phenomenon. The man in Jesus' parable was similar. Notice in verse 16 that the ground of a certain rich man produced a crop. The man neglected to recognize that God created the ground which produced the surplus, and he sought only his own comfort to take life easy. If we look around at our modern world, and I'm speaking very broadly here, we tend to live materialistically based on what the material world provides for us, neglecting that it is God who provided this material world itself, its structures and rhythms, and it is God who continues to sustain it and us. The modern world tends to operate in such a way that God is absent from how we order our society, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat one another, and how we relate to our things, the material world itself. And as modern Christians, we sometimes fall into a trap of spiritualizing our faith, 
as if God is only concerned with a future heavenly realm, seemingly downplaying God's interest in the material world. And then ironically, this then allows us to be as materialistic as everyone else. On one level, we must accept the materiality of the world. We live in it, after all. More than that, though, we can affirm that we have material bodies for a reason. They allow us to experience the world through the parameters of space and time as determined by God. We're physical by design with bodily processes and hungers and survival needs. And even further than this, our bodies enable us to interact with the world, with other people, and with God. We cannot live other than through our very materiality. Because of this, we ought to be driven to marvel at God's creation, of which we are an integral part, which God deems good and us as humanity very good. So we do live in a material world. The challenge we face as followers of Christ is learning to live according to the rhythms of God that God designed for us and then in line with the example that Christ set for us. As we try to step back and summarize Jesus' teaching from our passage this morning, let's consider again um, our experience with worry and anxiety. Reflect again on how you have experienced worry in your life. And we could at this point ask why it is that we worry. What is it that causes us to get anxious about this or that event or need or conflict in our lives? Why do we worry? Why is it such a pervasive presence? At the most basic level, I would suggest that worry, um, that we worry because we lack control. And there exists a gap in between what we desire on the one hand and our lack of control to achieve a certain outcome on the other. We can only do so much. In some sense, then, we end up trusting in a result that we cannot necessarily force to come to fruition rather than trusting in God in a much larger sense, trusting that God is in control of the whole of our being and the whole of the world regardless of our short-sightedness. In essence, we struggle with trusting what we cannot see. And isn't this the very nature of faith? I'm not here today to tell you that you can eliminate all the worries from your life. But we might be able to eliminate or minimize some of them. We might be able to reorient how we see the world by learning how to more fully trust God. This passage teaches us that we can trust God no matter our worries. For those of us who are anxious about our next meal, about feeding and clothing our children and other material necessities, these are very real needs. And God encouraged us to trust in his kingdom community. In verse 31, the disciples are told to seek God's kingdom, and they will certainly receive these other things as well. For those of us that perhaps worry about financial security, trusting in wealth to sustain us, trusting in our possessions to make us happy or give us purpose, God similarly wants us to trust in his kingdom community. We do not need to trust in our own material riches for our well-being or to provide our lives with purpose. 
By participating in God's kingdom, we find new meaning and purpose in our lives, which accord more fully with God's design for us. Not only does God desire our trust, but God also puts a lot of trust in us as this kingdom community. Just as we learn to trust God, God trusts this diverse group of people to take care of one another, to serve one another, to meet one another's needs. How amazing and humbling is it that God entrusts us in this way to take care of one another? God invites all of us, regardless of our circumstances, to be rich toward God. This is not simply a vertical orientation toward God. By sharing our wealth, our resources, our time, our gifts, our very lives with other people in the world, we're exhibiting a richness toward God. We demonstrate to God our trust in the divine human relationship, and we show to one another the very character of God's love for us when we love one another. As each of us goes about our daily rhythms in the coming week, I would encourage you to look for ways that you can be a blessing in someone's life. May we all look for ways to share our Christian life with those around us. May we look for ways to allow God to do beautiful things and make beautiful things in our lives in the coming week.